Welcome to the Progression Health Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Will O'Connor. Will, do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. So I have a PhD in sports science, which centered around metabolic flexibility and ultra endurance performance. I guess maybe we'll get into that. Um, and I'm a competitive runner. I focusing on ultra running. Um, so that's around the hundred K distance or around 80 miles for you Northern hemisphere people. Um, and how did I get into it? I guess like maybe some of your listeners will relate to this, uh, at university, I played rugby. I mean, so, you know, like just a collegiate sport that was all about, uh, the team environment and drinking. And so like, I, I drank a lot. Like I remember thinking, all right, if I can just hold down to four nights a week this week, I should be able to get on top of my work. Like that's, (laughs) you know, just enjoying being 18, 19. And then at the end of my first year of um, engineering, which I was studying, like I, I failed, which was a bit new for me. Like I always just, I was never the guy who got really good grades or was exceptional in anything, but I worked hard and just got the results that I needed to. And then reflecting on like not working hard enough and not getting results was like a bit of a slap in the face. So I was like, I want to do something different. And I was always jealous of my my mates that had um, had like national medals and they were getting trophies and ribbons from swim meets and all this. And as a rugby player, like unless your team wins, you don't get anything regardless of how much work you put in. And I played at a good level. I trialed for a couple representative teams. Um, And so I thought, okay, I'm going to try this like individual sport thing. It's kind of always intrigued me. I thought running sounds boring. I'll do triathlon. And I pretty much couldn't swim. I swam when I was like 12 years old and I was then like 19, 20. So for whatever reason, I just, that was it. I started and um, I changed the topic that I was studying from uh, engineering to biology because that interested me, me more, which turned into biochemistry, which turned into exercise science. Um, I got better and better at triathlon. I tried to become a professional, moved to Australia and trained full time, burnt myself out, came back to do a PhD, did my PhD, picked up some athletes who wanted some coaching and advice worked with the national triathlon team and uh, kind of started a business organically through that. And that's kind of been, I guess, the last five years, um, along with doing some research and some lecturing. And uh, here we are. <laughs> Brilliant. Quick snapshot. Yeah, lots of uh, interesting points to, to touch on. So, yeah, the metabolic flexibility, I want to come back to that. But just going from being a, a rugby player to an endurance athlete, you kind of couldn't really go from one end of the spectrum to the other. So how did that come about? Like, how did you switch up? Because it's kind of like in rugby, I, I guess you're trying to hold weight or put on weight. And I see a lot of endurance athletes are almost doing the complete opposite. They're trying to be as light as possible. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. Um, so I guess I always enjoyed the fitness aspect of rugby training. Like I was always, always prided my myself and being the fittest in the team um like I would I would run to the gym and like I never knew you know I don't know what you're like at school what your um kind of passion was but going to the gym and fitness and health was definitely mine and but I had no idea what I was doing 
you know, like I was trying to put on weight, but I was biking, you know, like six miles to and from school. I was then running in the morning to the gym. Maybe I'd run to um, practice or bike home. And then I wasn't, you know, I definitely wasn't eating enough. I got into protein, mass gainer, um, very crude kind of means of doing it. But so, yeah, I was, but I wasn't putting on weight. I was like the skinny white guy as you'd say in, in the team. Um, and so I played open side flanker. Some people may know what that is, but, um, and yes, I never, like I never held weight. I tried and was like religiously going to the gym and the hard work never kind of worried me. Um, and so, yeah, then transitioning to, to endurance sport, I didn't really know what it was about. So I didn't, like, I didn't care. I thought I was in amazing shape. So I remember this, this, um, this elite triathlete I was training with. So I ended up training with this really good group of guys that were all around the same age and they were way better than me. And, uh, I remember saying something like, yeah, but I'm in good shape. Like I'm ripped. And he's like, you're massive. Like you're way too big to be a triathlete. It's like, what, what do you, <laughs> what do you mean? Like I'm. I'm like in great shape. And so I was probably 80 to 85 kilos. Um, so would that be in pounds like 180? Is it 190? Yeah, somewhere around 180 to yeah, 190, right around there. Yeah. 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 So, like, you know, and I needed to be probably, I guess, 200, 220 pounds. You know, like I need to get up to 90, 95 kgs. Um, but I, that was kind of, I was just there, you know, like I'd have to put in a big effort to get an extra 10. And so, yeah, as it turned out, I needed to put in a big effort to get to lose like an extra 10 to get down to say a, a 55, I guess, or, you know, 150, 160 kind of area. But um, yeah, so that wasn't until later that I got obsessed with diet and weight loss um, in the transitionary phase, like I was still drinking a lot. Like I was still like 20 at university away from home. Um, so I was just having a good time about it. And then I just started to progress and get better and better. And yeah, when you, and then be like actually competitive, not just, yeah, like um, whatever, a weekend warrior or something. And so that spurs you on to train more and learn. And then as I was going through my like education, you know, I'm going from like first year to second year, third year of a degree, you start to learn some pretty intense stuff around how the human body operates. And so then I just started to experiment more on myself. It reminded me of when I was younger, I first got into the gym and I was like, oh, I want to be ripped like a fitness model. So I got to go extreme. Obviously. Obviously, where else would you go? You know, there's like so many different paths I could have gone down, like to exhaust other options. But I was like, you know, it's got to be a secret. It's got to be fat burners. And I can remember oh, buying, I can remember buying them. And the guy in the store is like, you know, you don't need to use this. Like there's other things you can do, like that you probably haven't exhausted, but also the businessman in him is like, I'm not going to not sell it to you. Yeah. And I remember just going for, oh, you have to do the low intensity cardio and all this kind of stuff. And it's just the hard lessons you learn when you, you don't know what you're doing. Like you said. Yeah. But, so yeah, I was taking creatine, um, and so that was good because you just load up on a lot of fluid. Like 
you're like, yes, an extra like few pounds straight away. Um, yeah, it's like honestly, pretty much just reading Men's Health magazine, yeah, and just like, oh, that guy's ripped. I'll start doing that. Um, yeah, yeah. If I could look back, hey, if anyone's listening out there and you want to put on a lot of weight, just start eating a ridiculous amount of food. <laughs> Like there's no way I would eat for the amount of like being like a 16, 17 year old, you know, boy. Oh man, the amount of calories I must've been putting out. It's just out. Yeah. Insane. I should have been eating so much more, but here we are. <laughs> yeah. We learned the hard way and then we can pass it on. So yeah. With uh, the metabolic flexibility, then it's something I've heard about before. I don't know, something like, the opposite that comes to mind is more common is uh, insulin resistance because, you know, the majority of the population in the world really would, would have an issue with that. So, you know, can you actually be metabolically flexible? How would you know you're metabolically flexible? What What is it? Okay, so I guess if I give a little lead and a little background to what happened to me. So I'm on the Gold Coast training full time, um, doing a little bit of teaching, like lecturing at the university and um so i'm strict low fat like i mean i'm cutting the fat off bacon i'm just i'm counting calories i'm trying to get as light as lean as possible and i'm training like we didn't have a car so i'm biking everywhere and i'm training like 25 hours 30 hours a week um and that's like train that's in the pool and out of the pool that's not like ex, like doing warm-ups and stuff um a ridiculous amount so in the first instance like that was too much for me i tried to do a professional load when i wasn't ready um but along with that um along with like overtraining myself i was gaining weight like and gaining body fat and i thought oh maybe i'm not being strict enough on my diet um i was definitely like i love sugar you know like chocolate candy just i can't get enough um and so sometimes you know you'd have your cheat day or whatever but um i was riding for five hours and then doing like a one hour run you know in one day so so trying to calorie restrict and expend ridiculous amount of calories and exercise obviously doesn't it doesn't compute um and so i'd go through like these cycles of start to get in because I was getting overtrained and I was becoming really tired and I was getting a hormonal imbalance from, you know, systemic fatigue or like um, stress within the system. Um, also like barely had any money. So it's just like a worry on top of a worry. And then because I'm overtraining, some of my performances at races are inadequate or bad. So I wasn't earning any prize money. Um, so it's like some more stress. And so then I'll go through these cyclic times of like binge eating um, because I'm just so calorie depleted that they're just, you know, I guess um, in the evolutionary sense, like the reptilian brain, it's just like an overall drive to like eat food. Like you, you are so depleted. This, this needs to be rectified. And then I'm making bad choices because I'm so cooked, you know, so it's like donuts and chocolate and, ice cream or whatever. Um, and then I feel bad about that. So, you, you know, you go, so I get more restrictive, which is, you know, piling bad habits on top of bad, trying to train. So anyway, um, 
that kind of went on, right? And then I was just like, what is happening? Like I'm, I can't, I'm training slower. I'm racing slower. I'm fatter. Um, and then that was the time when Tim Noakes, have you heard of him? Yeah. Yeah. So Tim Noakes is coming out. This is 2012 uh, on Twitter with all this low carb stuff. And I was like, this is weird. So I read, I read up on it and I was like, this makes a lot of sense. And then, you know, there's this powerlifter guy that I did my honors with, which I, I did before I went to Australia and he was doing keto and he was doing the cyclic, um, uh, I forget the author, the anabolic diet. Um, you can look it up. There's like a free PDF out there. Um, and so I think that's like five and two. So five, so you do your, um, adaptive window of about two weeks, 14, 20 days of hugely restrictive carbohydrates. And then you go five days and two days, two days of eating whatever you want. You know, here's me being coming from like a biochemistry, like fat equals fat gain. Um, This is how it kind of works. And, uh, and this, and avoiding all fat and this guy's just eating fat pretty much. I'm like, no way your arteries are going to be absolutely clogged and this can't be healthy. And I remember, telling my supervisor he came into the 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 lecture room there's only like 10 of us doing the postgraduate i was like can you tell scottish as we called him because he was from scotland can you tell scottish he's going to kill himself eating you know drinking this bottle of cream he's like why like why how could it work you know and i wasn't ready at the time to accept it but my super he steve subsequently became my supervisor and his um PhD was on uh, the effects of fasting on like not endurance performance, just sports performance, um, specifically around Ramadan, uh, where they are only eating at sun when the sun's down. Um, sorry, I can't completely recall what the religious context is around that Ramadan, but you know, so these their their national football team and all that could not eat during um, you know well the, during the sunlight hours. Um, so he was looking at the effects of that. So he knew all of this, right? And he he knew and quizzed me on it, but I still didn't really accept why this was happening. So anyway, so I'd already kind of had a pre-learning, I guess, before Tim Noakes started talking about all this low carb stuff and this um metabolic inflexibility and insulin resistance and um, you know, maximal fat oxidation rates and fat burning. And uh I always thought kind of like the more carbs you can burn, the the better you'll be, the more glycogen you can have, the better endurance athlete you'll be. And um, I think we're kind of, we'll touch on that later because that's kind of where we've gone back to a little bit um, with the, in the recent science of like sports supplementation during exercise. But, and I thought, I don't know, something just clicked in my head. So I, because like my dad eats a lot of fat, like he was, but he and barely exercises, but he's not that big. Like he's a little overweight, but he's never that big. And I always thought, how can you eat bacon and eggs and like, you know, cream, full cream this and heaps of butter on that and not be gaining more and more weight? It didn't really make sense. And so, so I got into it. I just was like, well, I'll do it. I'll stop eating carbs night and day. It was absolutely amazing. Like obviously there's responders and non-responders and I just, I just shed weight. Like fat was falling off of my body. I could, 
I was gone from like not seeing my abs, which was weird. I hadn't really like, that's how much weight I was putting on. I actually thought the scales were wrong. I just started ignoring them because I was like, nah. And, um, your weird mindset around that whole thing. But, and I just started feeling amazing. I was like, all right, there's something in this. And, uh, went back to New Zealand to race the, the summer season. And, uh, during that time, I was just keep researching, just keep researching on my own. And I thought, I'm, I don't think I'm keen to pursue being a professional athlete. I'm going to go back to university because I want to figure this out. Um, and so, yeah, so went back, got um, to do my PhD there uh, with my supervisor, Steve, and around this low carb thing. And I thought I was going to prove right? That low carb is the ultimate diet for ultra endurance exercise. I was like, so I designed the study that was long-term adaptation. So not this three days, not this one week low carb, like four weeks of low carb or four weeks high carb crossover. And then a five hour time trial, like which we did in the lab um, with two hour Fix, fasted fixed intensity measures. Um, so I'll kind of get into that before because I can see you kind of running it through your head. But um, anyway, so the main thing was like, I'm going to adapt someone for four weeks on a low carb diet and then I'm going to test them over five hours. Like if optimal fat oxidation is ever going to perform optimally, like it is over five hours where carbohydrates are not really contributing, it's mostly aerobic. Like you're... You're most you you are most likely to burn fat, and so the least carbs you can burn early on, you can save for the end. Um, and so, as I was going through it, that's when I realised that. Um, so the results really were that women responded, but men it was uh, negligible, like perform between the performance, despite the fact that on a high carb diet you're burning, you know, significantly more carbohydrates, way more. Like I'd have to look at the numbers, but like, you know, grams per per minute more. Um, but despite that, despite that, despite what diet you're eating, your body is, if you're trained, so I had trained endurance athletes, you had to be to be able to do a five hour time trial in the lab on a stationary bike. But, um, you will be metabolically flexible enough to actually just, uh, I guess, elicit the best performance out of yourself, physical performance, despite what fuel availability you have. Um, and so that's the metabolically metabolic flexibility side of things is where if you are a chronically high-carbohydrate athlete, that's not necessarily a bad thing because if you're doing – 15 hours of exercise each week, there's going to be points in time in which you are carbohydrate depleted. You're going to do a three-hour bike ride. Maybe you're going to do a 90-minute run after work, but you you skipped lunch or lunch was just happened to be, for whatever reason, not trying, was low carb. Um, or you get up for your morning run and you do it fasted because you just always don't eat breakfast before you run. All of those instances add up to adding like um, a stimulus to burn fat over carbohydrate. So um, so that's like, it's an adaptation. It's not 
maximal. It's not like specifically fasting and then exercising or specifically reducing carbohydrate intake to a minimum while exercising. So you're really forcing the issue of, of needing to burn fat because there is no carbohydrate. It's just incrementally over time, over a year or months, excuse me, um, you do force an adaptation. And so that when the time comes and you're exercising, carbohydrates available, you'll use it. But you won't use it, I guess, in an excessive manner that would mean that after three hours, you're completely depleted compared to someone who has really forced fat oxidation, fat at, like fat burning capacity to an absolute maximum. So at three hours, you may be burning more carbs as a carb eater and a high carb athlete compared to a low carb athlete. But actually you're not burning so much that after three hours, you're no longer, you've got none left. And even if you did start to run low on your glycogen or your carbohydrate stores, um, you would actually start to increase your fat oxidation. So it's not like that capacity doesn't exist. That's the flexibility side of things. Um, whereas, so when you eat low carb or you, you really force this fat oxidation, fat burning capacity, this fasted exercise or just daily fasting, whatever you want to do, you do become more flexible because then uh, like in a, in a scenario where you start to maybe go to 10 hours of exercise, you know, so we're talking like, like significant ultra endurance, Ironman triathlons that um, like ultra 50 miles, 80 mile, hundred mile ultra endurance. Now you start to be in a different scenario where you could be for extended periods of time, you could have limited carbohydrate availability. And so then if you have a higher than average fat burning capacity, what that means is if you're running, I'll pull some numbers out here, but if you're running at seven minute miles, right, and um, and you have the ability to, that's your aerobic pace, and you can do that 100% off of fat or 99% off of fat, then when your carbohydrates are depleted because you know you're between aid stations and whatever, you'll still be able to do that. But then if you're a high carb athlete and seven minute miles of your aerobic pace, that's still fine, but you are actually you run out of carbohydrates, your maximal fat oxidation pace may be 730. And so you'll be forced to forced to slow down. Um and so yeah. I guess I've spoken for a while. Where where are you on this? <laughs> so I'm curious. There's so many things like, you know, what did the elite, you know, because my kind of focus is like half marathons and marathons. What do the elite like runners do? What are the kind of importance of individual preference? Because I, I always hear that's a big one, right? And then like, is there a clear winner between like, you know, high carb or low carb? I guess I've thrown a few different questions at you there, but yeah. yeah. Just... So I guess if we go to um, the further you go down, uh, I guess the the exercising or athlete hierarchy, right? So you go elite, you know, and then you go like competitive. I'd say I'm, I'm in that area. Um, and then you start to go like weekend warrior, someone who might be 
maybe three days a week. You know, they can, they can kind of quite unquote train for their, their triathlon or their half marathon or something. And maybe four days a week. And then you go down to someone who's starting out and they do a bit of running. They, or cycling or whatever. And then two to three days a week. As you go down that, you're going down, uh, I guess the, the stimulation or stress, uh, hierarchy. So like when you're training every single day as an elite athlete twice a day, that's where it doesn't really matter what you eat because you are, you're just chronically stressing your muscle system, your whole physiological system to be optimized, to be uh, an optimal exercising machine. Uh, so if you're eating high carbs, you're still exercising two or three hours a day. So there's going to be plenty of opportunity to stimulate ox- fat oxidation, fat release, um, suppress insulin. Um, there's uh, contractually stimulated glucose transporters. So that's a means of transporting glucose into your muscle cells without the need of insulin. So like all that's continuously happening at the elite level. As you go down, now you're getting to someone, let's go to the bottom, you know, a couple of days a week. And you might have two or three days off exercise. You might be relatively sedentary for three days. Now you're not contractually stimulating anything. There is no stimulation to release any fat from your adipose tissue, like your stored body fat, to use as a as a muscle fuel. In actual fact, it's the reverse, right? It's like you're going to eat and you're going to need to store that energy. So you're going to store it as glycogen if it's carbohydrates or you're going to store it as fat, whether it's carbohydrates like sugar or as actual fat. And obviously you're going to burn some, but you need to store that. And so as those three days compound on each other, you start to, I guess, be less efficient. You start to need to burn a lot of that carbohydrate because in high levels, like it's toxic, high blood sugars, toxic. So our body is trying to disperse and maintain a healthy blood sugar level. So we don't have these peaks and troughs and crashes. Um, so now we start to rely on insulin a little bit. And insulin suppresses fat oxidation, it forces fat storage. Um, and so that's kind of what we're stimulating. And then we do our exercise. And then we might have another couple of days off. So in that sense, we're, we're not becoming metabolically flexible so when you have that person a low carb or a keto diet um, or intermittent fasting is going to be like highly effective for a lot of things we tested in the lab as sports scientists the further down the kind of athlete hierarchy you are the bigger effect things had the bigger effect a training intervention would have a supplement would have where the further up you go to the elite level as a finely tuned, highly optimized system, things like um, beetroot juice or um, nitric acid, like all these kind of different supplements, caffeine even, like they start to have, a di- there's a diminishing return because you're already so psychologically, phys- physiologically optimized to perform over a task. Whereas the further down you go, you know, these pre-workouts and, all these different kinds of supplements, they're going to have a far greater effect because the the chronic adaptation to these different stimulus stimuli isn't there. So that was one of the questions. Yeah, I get it. It's like 
and elite athletes already maximized all of their kind of buckets for their potential. So there's not much more they can do to get better. You know, they're only going to shave a couple of seconds off versus someone like me. I could, you know, I could train a lot more or I could switch up my diet and go low carb and I could improve a lot because I have so much more potential. You know, as I said, off air, the guy who won the most recent race is 20 minutes faster than me. So that's how much potential in theory I, I kind of have. Yeah, right. And so uh, like just by, in terms of in a running sense, like just by shedding a lot of weight and maintaining the same force production on the ground, so not losing, I guess, strength or muscle capacity, you'll run faster. You'll travel further each time your foot hits the ground if you can generate the same force. And now you're, without even training more, like just through losing weight, you become faster. Um, And so, you know, and then you add on to the fact that maybe becoming a little bit more metabolically flexible. Um, So by on your, you know, your aerobic runs, you'd kind of five mile, four mile run. If you're not relying on carbohydrate at all, because you become a bit more um, metabolically efficient and you're just relying on burning fat, there's a little less stress there, metabolic stress uh, from the potential production of acidic byproducts that carbohydrate metabolism can come um can be associated with and so so yeah so on top of that you may just be slightly more slightly faster through just a i don't want to say a simple alteration to your diet but just through altering your diet yeah that's a straightforward change that could produce huge benefit that's good to know and is that something that like as a coach you know would you kind of recommend someone try switching their diet up like that to try and get faster or, you know, how would you coach something like that? Oh, so after being through the, being so attached to um, low carb, I guess, and the diet world, uh, which um, during my PhD and a little bit after, uh, I decided to just completely step away from that. So like I hardly ever talk about, this kind of stuff, um, diet especially because, and I, unless someone engages with me specifically about it as an athlete, um, I don't really want to get into it because you've talked about diet and stuff with people. It's it's like a religion for people. They have really stern, hard beliefs. And uh, I'd prefer to, there's a, like I said, for a lot of the um, clientele that I work with, um, similar to you, you know, it's, it's, Similar to your listeners, probably a lot of working professionals, they just want to optimize their time. You know, there's there's family commitments, there's work, there's a lot of drivers, there's social things, there's travel. Um, but they would love to absolutely just smash their their marathon, their half marathon, their, their 10 mile, 10K. And it's like, I don't want to waste my time. How can I optimize that? I think there's a lot of a lot of scope to optimize training. Um so that there's a consistent training improvement um so you can build week on week month on month to to then opt to then race well and then to incorporate like a diet stress on top of that it's like and i don't know how you work with clients with diet um advice and things but it's, it's open to interpretation you know you're like like okay 
don't eat carbs, you know, let's um, put a line in the sand, say a hundred grams a, a day or whatever. And um, then they're like, oh yeah, but this doesn't count. And then like, you know, oh, I, I'll, I'll have bread, but it's not, I don't count it because it's Thursday. You know, and you're like, what are you, you're not going to, it, it's too far. I just can't, I just, I just can't do it, you know? And so, but then some people find it on their own. You know, and they, so then they ask me for advice. What I prefer to give is like what you're asking me about. I'd like to give background science and advice on if someone was trying to pursue a low carb approach to exercise, that um, how to go about that, you know, rather than saying, because they could be completely happy, right? With whatever diet they're doing, they, typically everyone thinks that they're doing mostly the right thing um, with a little bit of wrong things. And that's fine. And um, but then to to come in and say, hey, you need to try this because like what I found during my research, women especially, they didn't like it. They did not like eating bacon and eggs cooked in butter for breakfast or, um, you know, a coconut cream and cream smoothie. Um, just, yeah, there's a psychological component to it. If you've traditionally eaten pretty low fat to get over the fat equals fat. Um kind of mindset and so yeah so when someone's coming into it and they're saying hey look i'm trying out this low carb what would you recommend like my big recommendation is like fasted training is absolutely amazing um and your your ultimate goal is to race well right is typically have a big goal and um you know for you you like half marathon you you want to you want to absolutely smash that. So your goal is to actually get on the start line and just be in, an, in the best shape you can be, really happy and healthy so that whatever happens, you've had a good experience. Um, and part of that is doing some really hard workouts. And those workouts, you need to optimize your your effort and your performance within the workouts. You can get the best stress possible um, and most specific stress for your race. So you need carbohydrates what I see a lot of time people do is they go, I'm going low carb. They get really good results within a couple of weeks uh, and they start to have a fear of carbohydrate. I, I just definitely did. I was like, oh man, carbs equals, now it's like reverse, right? Carbs equals fat. And uh, I wasn't getting enough carbohydrate to optimize the high intensity like training that I needed to do because as soon as you start exercising around I guess just a bit above, let's say a marathon pace or if anyone knows kind of their thresholds, like their threshold pace, once you start getting close to that 95% and above, you need carbs. Like there's no, there's no two ways about it. There's no hundred percent. If you want to perform optimally kind of over, over any endurance distance, even um, ultra endurance, you need carbohydrate because not every single muscle fiber within your legs or your arms or wherever is going to solely 100% rely on fat. There needs to be carbohydrate there. Um, even just like there's a saying, fat burns in the flame of carbohydrate. And that's if you know biochemistry, it's the way acetyl-CoA feeds into oxaloacetate and it generates the the TCA cycle. Um, and so there's you need carbs to perform optimally. And so when you start having a fear of carbs, um, it deters from your ultimate goal, which is to race well. In my sort of simplified version, 
it's like no person is 100% type 1 or type 2 fibers. And I know they're differentiated further, but type 1 is going to be carbs and uh, type 2 is going to be fat. Or no way. Yeah. It'll be the, or maybe the other way around. But other way around. Other yeah. way around. Yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely, yeah, it, it, there's a whole lot of sense to what you're saying. So, and also the fear of carbs as well. It's just, it's not really sustainable long term, I, I would feel. And even with my own coaching, I used to try and do the exercise and nutrition. And I just realized I am so passionate about exercise. I don't really have the same passion for nutrition. It's also kind of religious at times. And you can get so much out of exercise on its own. A lot of the times I feel like nutrition can, for the most part, not 100% of the time, but it can look after itself once you get the exercise right. So that's a similar kind of conclusion I have. So it's, Yeah, it's uh, like eat well. Yeah, like I've, everyone knows. No one, no one thinks Coca-Cola is good for them. You know, no one thinks eating chocolate and going to McDonald's is good. We know, we know what's good. We, yeah. So it's like stop eating all of the junk and you'll, if you're exercising, you'll be fine. Yeah. It's like, I feel like the more we put into nutrition or I'll speak for myself, the more I put into nutrition, the more I kind of focus on it and get more like kind of restrictive. Whereas the more I put into exercise within reason, the more it gives back to me because with exercise, it could be walking, it could be swimming, it could be, you know, there's so many different ways mm. I could go about it. I could even do yoga and call that exercise. So it's like, yeah, it, it, there's a lot more bang for my buck with exercise. And uh, yeah, it's it's just more cost effective for my mental energy. Yeah. the um, So I have another podcast, or I have a couple, but one that I do with another sports scientist that I did my PhD with, we talked about the energy availability theory. And this is a big one. This is if you follow any kind of triathlon, the Norwegians are, smashing it right there i saw yeah on rich roll's podcast yeah the two guys are like yeah 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 so half ironman world champion ironman world champion olympic champion olympic distance champ world champion world series champion like everything they're just they're just winning and uh one of their big things is the volume of training they do consistently like throughout the year and um the bigger guys like traditionally then we would otherwise, you know, than you normally see. And all they focus on is training. Like their diet is how much energy can we get in to figure out how much energy we can expend? Because the more energy you can expend in a day, the more training you can do, the more adaptation you can get. So they're trying to find the balance of like, can I eat, if I eat another thousand calories, can I burn can I do another hour of training? It's kind of like that. And so they've really flipped it on its head or kind of opened up this other opportunity where you go, actually, if I eat more, what do I feel like? Like, am I recovering more? Like, am I able to do, is that 45 minutes now becoming 60 minutes without actually, you know, being that bad? Am I sleeping a little bit better? And that's definitely what I've found with a lot of the busy professionals there's a guy I recently had and now I said, I don't really help diet, but he said, I'm losing weight and he didn't want to. He's like, he's trying to do a fast 5k and he otherwise does CrossFit and he just, he's just looking to be holistically healthy. So I'm losing weight and I don't want to. So I said, I'm, but he's in finance, he's a big, big wig. And uh, I said, 
you know, send me your your average diet, your daily daily food, what you're eating. You know, nothing intense. He's like, I don't want a diet plan or anything. I said, like, just send that to me. You know, and he's eating, he's in like 800 calories less than he needs to. Um, and, you know, for him who's busy and he's already eating three meals and it's like 800 calories is kind of hard to find. So I said, look, try this mass gainer shake. It's got like 500 calories in it. And then just make sure you have another piece of toast at 3 p.m., whatever. Um, so post-exercise, have this really calorie dense. You could put some, you know, MCT oil or some coconut oil, things like that to bolster it. And a lot of the time, that's what's happening. You're, you've got kids running around, and so you have some breakfast, but oftentimes like without a significant fat source within your breakfast, you're only getting three to 500 calories. And as a, if you're an a exercising male around that 160, 180 pounds, you're probably expending two and a half to 3,000 a day. And so then you're only getting three or 500 for breakfast and you get 500 for, for lunch, maybe a bit more. Maybe you didn't have time for a proper lunch. Then you have like a maybe 800 for dinner and then you're like, still hungry obviously because you're like only at 1800 and you're supposed to be at two and a half thousand um yeah and so so trying to eat more and getting a, a healthy fat source within your diet so making sure you have butter on your toast or whatever it is um can often lead to a better like day-to-day feeling and energy like you're saying like mental energy because when you start to be look at your diet intensely i'm the same as you, right? You start to be more restrictive and saying no a lot. And uh, then then it's just another thing. Like we have so much stuff going on <laughs> in our lives. It's like to try and to try and say no to to try and just add diet stress on top of that. It's like rough. And unless, unless you know you you're starting to build like really bad habits, which you can cut out, like that's that's different than than being ultimately restrictive on different aspects. So then just with kind of like body weight, nutrition, training, would you have to have a sense of what, and maybe even a second opinion of what an ideal weight to, to, to perform at is? So then you could say, right, I want to hold it. I want to add, you know, more calories to get more weight. I want to, you know, would you require that in the first place or how would you figure that out? Well, yeah, I'm not big on the weight thing like so take your shirt off and have a look in the mirror i think that's like if you if you have a look in the mirror and you you can tell can you like if you can't see your muscle definition then you're carrying too much fat unless you're like a power lifter or someone who needs mass moves mass so you're a sumo wrestler or whatever um but it's relatively easy to determine if you're carrying excess fat uh, I think we all know if we are or, or not. And so whatever the, so you need to lose fat. I mean, there's a healthy amounts of fat as well, but if you are specifically looking to perform better, then reducing your excess body mass that is non-functional, so that would be body fat, is going to allow you to perform better. You're able to move more efficiently and more effectively. You're not expending unnecessary energy carrying Un, like non-functional body mass around. Um, so, but then 
I would have no idea what that would be, right? You know, you can't, I mean, you could do, you can do body composition scans um, to figure out how much body mass, you know, but it's, you still don't know, you could lose five pounds of body fat and that would be enough. Then you'd see all your definition. You're like, I can't really lose more than this or this would be, I'd start to be losing too much. But then you could be side by side with your twin who has the same amount of body fat or at least, you know, looks like it and everything. And they could lose 10 pounds of body fat and be, and then be ripped and, and feeling, you know, seeing their definition and feeling optimal. Um, but what that number is like, we don't, we don't know. Um, so yeah, it's hard because I, I have a mate that I run with. He's significantly faster than me. So he runs um, like a 220 marathon. Um, so he's like elite, you know, and uh, to standing side by side, we look very similar. You know, we're about six foot two. And uh, so he's five kgs. So that would be like 10, 12 pounds lighter than me. And I have no idea where, I have no idea where it is. Like I have no idea how I'm carrying that much more mass than him. When like he's a um, he's a builder like a laborer, so he appears like a bit more muscular than I do, which would be the heavier component of anything. So I guess I have a a much heavier skeletal system than him. But you know, so am I? Like I can't. I've never been his weight. I've never gotten that that light before, despite like really trying. So you can't really say, oh yeah, you're you're six two and a runner. You should be. 140 pounds it's like well I, I can't like i'd be i'd be injured for sure i'd be like i'd have no energy i'd have to really significantly restrict my diet to a level that i'm not willing to or probably don't have the capacity to and so but what i can do and what i would recommend along that that question would be you can you can adapt like adopt a healthy lifestyle and that's going to lead to like when you know when you know you're you're not having ice cream after dinner you you know you're you're adding enough like an an additional protein source to your dinner so you're not worrying about being hungry later on when you're doing all those things i don't think you really get worried about your your weight as much you know you go oh i feel amazing and the weight has to come off because if it's not, then something else in your life is is holding, is is causing the hormonal imbalance of the excess stress, which can cause some some people to hold weight in like a kind of a stress response. Like that would have happened if we were, you know, um fearing an oncoming famine or um mass migration to like a a more prosperous location as, you know, whatever, hundreds of thousands of years ago. Um, and some people may lose weight, but you know, if you're, if you're waking up at 5am dealing with the kids, going, dropping at school, kindy, going to work, work stressful, getting the kids, getting dinners ready, then going for it, going on the rower, getting on the treadmill, then checking some emails and going to bed, you're not, that's, you know, that's unhealthy. That's this high, high stress environment. And it's going to be hard to maximally adapt physiologically to kind of anything. Like you compare that to an elite athlete who wakes up, goes training, 
comes back, has the proper food, literally chills out, checks some emails, doesn't have any impending like necessary thing to do except for get ready for the next training session. You know, that's that's the dude who's 20 minutes ahead of you. You compare your lifestyle to his, even if you could do the same training, he's not like sending me these emails and writing up this description I'm looking at for the podcast and these line of questions. And, you know, there's not that level of, and all your clients and, and the business you run, like you, you're going to really struggle to adapt if you don't shut out everything. So, so then trying to be like, oh yeah, I should be 153 pounds. It's a very specific number. So it's kind of like, to consider your performance and how to improve it, you also have to be very realistic with the demands in your life and kind of see like where it's realistic to make a change and try and reach your potential and where it's not. Is that like something you would kind of think of as a coach? Like you need to have realistic expectations. So when I started, like when I was doing this like 30 hours of training, I had this unrealistic expectation of myself of like, I'm ready to be a professional, but I wasn't. Like, and so when someone comes to me and they go, oh, I want to run a sub three hour marathon. And uh, so I have a popular podcast episode, how to run a sub three hour marathon, the numbers and the workouts, right? And I go through the numbers and the workouts. Like if you can't do these kind of numbers and these workouts, there's, there's like, there's 99% chance through my experience that you're not going to be able to do a sub three hour marathon. Um, and so what I, what I see often, especially in marathon, half marathon running, is uh, runners picking these arbitrary times. And the only kind of real quote-unquote data they have to back it up is one, a desire um, to, to do the time. Their training mate that they've gone for a few runs with who did that time last year um, and maybe something they did at college or something they did five years ago and or their office buddy who did this time um hardly ever is it like associated with the specific numbers right and um weight is often the same thing where you're like this is the number it's it's like um your salary or like earning or like your car it's like you know we bought a new car recently it was like this was the number <laughs> Uh, we're not spending more than this, but you're not, you also kind of fix yourself. You know, I'm not spending less than this either. Kind of like, what can we get for this number? It's it's the same kind of thing. It's not really realistic. It's like, um, and it takes a lot of maturity, I think, through the, like finding yourself as a quote unquote athlete or just a someone who's as a training individual um, to be comfortable and going, why don't I find out what my number is? Um. Yeah, because I always I always used to chase the lower number, right? And then I realized actually, I'm running. I'm running well, right? I'm training well, and I'm improving. And actually, that is the goal, not this, like not seventy three kilos. That's not. That doesn't really mean anything if I'm injured. Yeah, you reminded me of. You know, in the fitness industry, a lot of people are like, oh, the result is to get like the abs, you know, to like look healthy or to look lean. Mm -hmm. And it's like, 
No, I think the the real aim is to feel healthy. And it's like, you know, the time is great if you're making me think of my own training. It's like if I could hit a PR in my next half marathon, great. But it's kind of like I'd much prefer to like be able to kind of just show up and have like a real good block of training and be like happy with the consistency and not be injured, not be burnt out because there's so much more in that. A, a, a PR is great, but it's, it can be kind of hollow because all the side effects that can come with it of, you know, injuries or burnout and stuff like that, like the burnout you mentioned from when you were trying to be a triathlete. So, yeah, it's a really good. Oh, point. I've been, I've been on that roller coaster, and and uh, I just had a really good month where I did uh, a marathon, and I got a, a PR, and then I did a one mile road race, a five k road race, and a hundred k. And um, in one month, right? And so, like, I did a 237 marathon. I ran 16 minutes for 5K, just over four minutes on for a mile. And then I ran 100K, came third, you know, eight and a half hours. And, um, like, I took the expectation off of myself, right? Through the whole process was, and I spoke to my wife about this. It's like, I'm just going to enjoy this. And, man, did I enjoy it. Like, it was just so much fun i had a really good experience right and uh my last marathon i put so much uh emphasis on the time right it was like i and i had trained i enjoyed the process of the training but each training i was like chasing that time it just just to try and get down to like the low 230s and uh so i happened in the race so i still ran 239 but in the race i is this point I wrote about it on my blog, did a podcast on it as well. I made this real bad decision, right? So I saw my heart rate. I saw my, and I knew my feeling and I just, but I was on my time. So I just, in the moment, neglected the, the ultimate goal, right? was to, to race. And I would have got a, a, a PR, I'm sure, but instead I blew out. Right, I kept chasing and then had this horrible experience over the last six miles, right? Maybe even 10 miles, just grinding it out and finishing in a time that was like, I know I can do that time. It was like, what did I get out of this? Like, out of all that hard work, I just got this empty feeling. Whereas a couple of weeks beforehand in the lead in, I did the half marathon national champs and being a data guy, like, hashtag faster with data is like my thing right and um i just i took my watch off i didn't i raced a half marathon without a watch because i no data right because i wanted to i didn't want the pressure of it was for training and i wanted to feel in myself how i needed to feel around a race um done plenty of half marathons i know what i can do and oh i had so much fun like i we got into the hill and because it was a hilly course, I knew it was going to be slower. So I just didn't want to get attached to the time. So, and as national champs, it was good field. So we were like racing, you know? And so I was like, oh, I'm going to wait here. And then I'm going to like push on the downhill. And um, it was so much fun. So much fun. I like finishing on a real high compared to, um, yeah. Like if I'd been like, Oh, I need to run like a one fifteen to get a, a two thirty whatever I ended up running like I think I did run 115 116 my pb is like 113 you know so it's like three minutes off but it's like 
I didn't even care. Like the time was had no no um, attachment to my goal, which was to enjoy and feel the race. And um, yeah, but then yeah, many times I've been attached to the time and and made poor choices in training to chase the the you know the the workout. Like I have to do this to equal the this many miles a week equals this level of time and anything less is going to be a lesser performance. Um, but trying to allow yourself to yeah, trust that process. And like you're saying, like if you really have your goal for your half marathon, it's like, it's a block headwind point to point course. You're not going to do it. And so it just becomes a little hollow, you know? And uh, what do you do in that scenario? Do you, do you run as fast as you need to at the start and then slow down like because you can't run that fast into a headwind or do you go, all right, well, let's see what I'm going to, you know, just look at my heart rate and make sure I can, my goal is to run each 5K segment, each quarter faster. You know, you can have all these different challenges and when you complete that, you'll be really stoked regardless of what the time is. So I've heard recently if, if you'd like, the last podcast I had and actually just saw it on Twitter, you know, it's all about enjoyment. Like that's a real big part of, you know, any endeavor really. And it's kind of like you're setting in or anyone would be setting themselves up for failure. If it's just about the PR, because number one, you can only PR so many times. And number two, there's like with enjoyment, there's so many different ways that it could be enjoyable that you're kind of sucking that out of it straight away by only focusing on the PR. So yeah, it, it makes so much more out of, the event by by focusing on the enjoyment and yeah that's actually something that i tried before that i've gotten away from so i want to get back to that for my next one so you'll really always always you'll oh, always yeah. go away from it it's like it's like diet right it's like going to bed early like it's it, you'll always just stray away because it's easier to get attached to the shiny new thing um, which is the pr right and it's it's a balancing act as well because like you want that motivation. You don't, unless you're, depends why, why you're doing it is, is a different thing, but I always want to run faster. Like I'm, it's just what really motivates me. And so the two thirty barrier for a marathon is very attractive for like the 15 minute barrier for 5k. Like those are real big goals of mine, but it's just knowing like that I'm going to try to achieve that's that's like a motivator but it's it's not the goal the goal is to like have fun yeah and um because when i first broke 240 in the marathon i was just writing a blog about it and um it's i got to well i remember going through halfway and we were like 11948 right so like 12 i need to go through it at um 120 and so like 12 seconds ahead the guy i was running with he goes cool we just need to do that again and i was like oh no way i'm hurting here like and that again like that again no way i was like well we'll just keep working together and i'll just you know try i just keep trying because because i want it i want this i want this sub 240 and so then, uh, you know, it started to really hurt. You know, those last kind of few miles, I was looking at my watch and I was like, I can do this. Like, I can do it. I can do it. 
And it just spurred me on through that, that grinding pain of like your, your being saying, slow down, like stop. Be, your life will be so much better if you stop and just be like, actually, I can, this goal I've been really hunting for, I can achieve it if I don't stop or don't slow down. So in that sense, it's like, I allowed, I guess, I let go of the goal early. Right, I was just running. I was running on feel and making sure I keep an eye on my time. And but overall, the pro, I was enjoying the process of being out there racing. And and then when it came down to it, I kind of attached to the goal, which then motivated me to run faster and and push more than I otherwise would have if I had fully just detached and gone. Let's see what happens. You know, then I would have been in the pain and been like, "Wow, well, I'm running well," so it doesn't really matter but having that time but it's a difficult one yeah because we because like just last year i attached to the outcome too early and and neglected all these signs that i know time and time again telling me to slow down so it really depends on the situation i think like you have to pick your spots of when you're gonna you focus on the the PR or the the goal and when you're going to focus on the process or the enjoyment. It's kind of like an experience thing. Yeah, because like um, you're going to, the way I like to run training is like you do these kind of benchmark workouts. Um, so let's, say, let's just say you do a, a, a 10K time trial. Like for me, I'm going to be pretty aware of what your capacity is for a half marathon. So you can say, hey, look, you you could be on for a, for a one twenty five here. Like this this is a realistic goal for you, but it's gonna, you know, it might not be on. Depends on the course. Depends on what day you're having. So whereas like a one twenty, it's like no, don't. So you can say you can have your like I knew a two forty was on for me. It was within my capabilities. Whether I was going to have that day or not, hard to say. So you can kind of set that. You, you want to be able to have that realistic time point. And so then you can get into the race and then you can go, yeah, it's that, it's that block headwind or it's, it's raining and there's lots of surface water. So it's like, that's not the day. That's, that's not now it's, it's definitely that time goal is not, I'm running, like I'm trying to hit those splits, but I'm, I'm not hitting them. So, so it's switching, it's switching focus. It's having that. I guess that mental flexibility as opposed to metabolic flexibility to to play around with that. And and if you take a step back like that, the hard part, I don't know how you find it, but it's like in training, you know, you could be really tired or like you know it's not a good idea to go for your run. Like you just you think, oh, I need, you know, it's like one session out of this next 14-day block. You won't like in 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 a week's time. You won't even look back and be like, "Oh, I missed that. I missed that ten mile run." Now I can't. Now I'm fat and I'm fit. You know, um, it's trying to enjoy that process of knowing, of being tired and 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 needing to take a day off and all the way leading up to, yeah, the end goal. But you know, for for your listeners. And yourself, it's like, and me, we're not those personalities. 
where the like hard work gets results. So the fact that I'm thinking I shouldn't do this is a sign that I should do it. That that doubt in my head is the doubt that I need to overcome. It's like I'm working against that doubt or, and it's probably undoing a lot of good work or a rest day, like you said, one in 14 weeks isn't going to make a huge difference. But just kind of going back to the actual running itself and the zones. So one of your posts you had about the training zones and I feel like people are blue in the face talking about just, you know, uh, zone two, zone two. And I, that's all I hear. And I, I even hear people who like, you know, no disrespect, like, but they're not like experienced runners talking about zone two, you know? And I'm just like, is it really that simple? Like, can you kind of give us a little bit of your, uh, your experience on, uh, the, all the zones and is zone two the best? Oh, the old zone two. Yeah. It's really taken off. <laughs> Um, so I guess when we're talking about training zones, what we're trying to do is, um, we're trying to, as coaches or practitioners, physiologists, sports science, whatever, we're trying to convey a common language between a coach and an athlete. So in terms of prescription sense, so rather than me saying, okay, 7.15 per mile to you, and then I'm going to say a 6.15 mile, and then I'm going to say a nine-minute mile to that person over there. Um, and what I'm trying, or I can say, right, easy, you know, or easy, moderate, you know, and as so I say zone two. Okay, and I'm going to base that off of your threshold, your anaerobic threshold. So you're, okay, cool. I've now I've got kind of objective numbers where I'm looking and for you it's 7.15, for me it's 6.30, for that lady it's it's 8 and but it's all let's say 75% of your threshold. So for everyone it's like that that becomes like a common uh prescription prescriptive term. Like oh okay, that's I can say have 10 people in front of me and we're like all going to go do a zone two run and we can all do it at a different pace and it's all going to have the same kind of effect, I guess, or like it's, it's training the same kind of, we're, we're chasing the same kind of stimulation um, through that. So when we have the zones, we have, that's that's why we have them, right? So we can get this kind of, common language between practitioner and client athlete to to be able to describe an intensity in a relative term so rather than being like easy moderate hard sprint or whatever it's like here's some actual numbers that we can utilize that's going to be commonplace then so that's like the basis of training zones (laughs) then we get into like the actual calculation of training zones and that's where everyone's lost Right, so there's, I guess, at the fundamental level, metabolically, there's three. There's kind of like uh, your 100% aerobic, which is what we've talked about, where you're using oxygen and fat, maybe a little bit of carbohydrate, oxygen and fat to generate ATP, adazine triphosphate, which is the energy currency of the cell. So we need that ATP to generate muscular contractions so like oxygen fat cool and then beyond that we start to enter into the um 
anaerobic metabolism and we have this mid-ground where we have a little bit of anaerobic metabolism you know just so let's say like marathon intensity maybe maybe you've got yeah you're starting to burn a little bit of carbohydrates without oxygen because we need energy a bit we need that atp a bit quicker faster than what fat or the oxidative pathway is going to generate it and so then there's a bandwidth in there where we have a little bit let's say like one percent two percent anaerobic metabolism all the way up to 99 percent. so we have that window in there which is kind of like your marathon half marathon running intensity then beyond that we so that's called moderate so we have easy zone two moderate and then zone three is severe and so that is when we are now 100 percent or almost um 100 anaerobic so we're pretty much without oxygen majority of the of the atp production is done without oxygen so now you're looking at um all the way to like yeah i guess like sprinting and a 1500 or one mile race and so we kind of actually really only have those it's like that um if you were taking a lactate test you'd have lactate threshold one, which is the initial onset of blood lactate, and then the lactate turn point at which lactate accumulation is uncontrolled and rapid, non-steady state exercise. So actually, we only have those three. Um, but that's really hard as a prescriptive thing to say zone two when, when actually that's like completely opposite to what everyone else is talking about. So in a scientific realm, uh, I see a lot of pure sports scientists who maybe aren't um, everyday coaches uh, or work with like the common ground of of athlete um, would maybe describe it like that, and which is almost completely disassociated with what the population base uses zones. So that's confusing, and then most people are going to use between a five zone and a seven zone system. Um, but regardless, both five zones or seven zones, the zone one and zone two are going to be below that point of blood lactate accumulation. So that um, that point at which anaerobic metabolism starts to enter into your intensity. So that would be, slower than marathon pace for a lot of people and the reason that uh i guess that's a term to the gold standard exercise intensity is it sits within the the bell curve of high stimulus you know you're still you're still running at a relatively steady intensity but low stress and so what you're doing is you're you're stimulating exactly what you want out of building endurance in terms of your oxygen and fat metabolism within the mitochondria so you can upregulate fat like release from and transport from adipose tissue to your muscle fat transporters within the muscle and actual generation of or of new mitochondria so you can burn more fat, more fat faster, more ATP, more muscular contractions, faster running. It's that whole process. Um, and so the more of that you can do, the 
the chronic, yeah, the more chronic kind of stress you'll get on that specific system and the better the adaptation. And then because once we start going above that, it starts to get into murky waters, I guess we'll say. My takeaway is just to train with, it's it's so reductionistic, but train with a plan. So not to go out and just think that like, because I get into like zone five, it's like a better workout. It's uh... Yeah, so the big trap with zone two um, for, you know, a lot of people you're saying who kind of potentially have no idea and are talking about zone two is they will use average heart rate often as the, as the reference point. So what I see there is um, what's often termed gray zone training where, like I said, you don't have a plan, but you know, like you should train kind of easy, but you don't want to train easy because that's, that's not why we're doing it, you know, mental strength, hard stuff. Um, and so you go, okay, my, you do a calculator, online calculator, maybe Garmin gives it to you, whatever watch your whoop or whatever is like, oh yeah, this is your zone two. Cool. 150 beats. So you go out, you're obviously warming up. It's 120, 130, 140. Then you run up a hill, 160, you run down the hill, it's 145. You you push and you want to like kick on a little bit at the end. It gets up to like 165, 167. You have a look, average heart rate, cool, 150, 149. That's exactly what I needed. But actually you just like did this random non-specific kind of intensive training session that is going to elicit like relatively large amount of fatigue with relatively less specific stimulation of like the aerobic system. And that's where you get into gray zone. And that's where I see the big mistake in zone two training is like, is people just still not doing it easy enough. That's yeah. The hard thing is just keeping it easy. It's always, it's a lot more, I don't know, is it, is it just, it's like a shiny object syndrome or it just seems more intense and that seems better. But yeah, something you did mention is uh, lactate threshold and then running power. So, you know, what, what are they? Are, are they kind of more intermediate considerations or, uh, you know, when is it an effective time to start considering stuff like that? So the the lactate threshold is... I guess is a ambiguous term used for kind of what I reference the lactate threshold as for someone who's not specifically using a lactate meter is that point of diminishing returns, right? So it's like that, that red line. Okay. You go above this line. It's your time above this line, this pace, this power, this heart rate is, uh, is limited. So, so we need to be careful around <laughs> around that like that's not going to be marathon pace for you and from that based off of the collective world of data that we have we know certain percentages of what you can sustain so you go out um often it's like a 30 minute test or like what you can use for your recent run which is about an hour it's perfect you can take the last 20 minutes of that and that's pretty much going to be your maximal sustainable pace uh, or threshold pace, which is kind of what you can maximally sustain for like an hour 
maybe a bit longer, depends on how well you're trained. And then based off of the the mass of data we have, we know like that 90% of that you is going to be around your marathon pace. 95% of that is probably going to be around your your half marathon pace and below 90% is kind of that aerobic sustainable pace, that zone two, right? That 80 to 90% is going to be your, yeah, your aerobic pace. And so that's where once we have that metabolic reference point, you can't kind of cheat that. You can't, like I know how fast you ran for whatever it was, like 58 minutes. There's no world in which you run five minutes quicker this week it's like that's and especially when we're looking at heart rate once you've set your threshold heart rate it's not real like if you're well trained enough like you are like it's not really going to change how fast you run relative to that heart rate so you're 150 beats maybe it was 730 a mile then it becomes seven a mile 150 is still your zone two it's it's still that's still the reference point for your training intensity um so so that's that's kind of the threshold reference question, I think. Yeah. And your your post then that you actually had on, on your channel, YouTube channel, is about running power. It's another term yeah. I've seen. So it's almost like running's become more complicated. So yeah, what is running power and is it something to consider for, you know, someone running half marathons? Okay. So running power has been recently more complicated and in the running sphere because uh, Garmin uh, integrated running power on the wrist. And so um, other, so initially we just had the stride running power meter, which is a third party device that initially was in the heart rate strap. And then subsequently now it's like a foot shoe clip clips onto your laces. Um, And then Garmin kind of always had it in their heart rate strap but you had to kind of activate it. Um, and so most people didn't really know it was there. Uh, but then with the introduction of running power onto the wrist for Apple Watch and Garmin, um, Chorus and Polar and other devices do them as well, but Garmin and Apple being the big players in the space, people were starting to go, oh, what is this? Like, how does this work? And what does it all mean? So I guess simplistically, it's... Um, it's a means of energy expenditure over time, right? And so the best uh, analogy or like way to think about it is if you're running on the flat and you're running your seven minute mile, it's uh, that's, that's a real seven minute mile. And so however, however much power, 300 Watts is requiring you. So that's energy over time. Like that's 300 Watts. Now you get to your hill and you got to run up the hill you try and run your seven minute mile, that's no longer equivalent to a seven minute mile. Like the amount of increased force production, so the increased energy you have to put out to maintain a seven minute mile up a hill against gravity is now going to, rather than 300 watts, it's going to be 400 watts because you're increasing the amount of energy you're outputting over time. So when we have running power, we have a means of normalizing your effort grade adjusted pace gap yeah so grade adjusted pace is it's adjusting your pace based off of the grade so said like um you run this really hilly 
run and you you got your seven minute mile and then grade adjust the pace will say that's equivalent to a 630 because what it's saying is if this was flat your your hilly course was flat and you you ran this effort it would equate to this faster pace and power is doing exactly that it's saying so you can go do your 5k run and you can average 300 watts um and so we know like that's going to be your best effort over 20 20 odd minutes so you go do that on an uphill right and you can go well obviously running 5k's uphill that took you 27 minutes but you average the exact same or slightly less because you're going a bit longer you average like say 290 watts you go oh well that's equivalent that's an equivalent effort so you're going to get the equivalent amount of stress and stimulus out of that uphill effort as you did to your like 5k all out so then when we start to think about exercise prescription and we start to think about pacing uh, within a race we can get a potentially more accurate representation of of the amount of work we're doing so you may want to run your your, your 125 your 130 140 half marathon but and you know in training you've been training you're like yeah cool I've I'm allowed, rather than saying I'm allowed to run 715s, you can say I'm allowed to run 280 to 300 watts. That's about my my range that I can sustain. So then that's, again, helping with that like end outcome thing. So when you get to a hill, you're not guessing. You're not chasing a 715. You're not guessing it's like a 730. You're running 280 to 300 watts. Maybe you're allowed 300 on the hills and it's 280 on the flats, whatever. Um so in that sense, you are potentially getting a more accurate means of of pacing yourself and like your point-to-point kind of energy distribution. Then in saying that, there's the measurement. And uh, how accurate is it? Um, hard to say. Like the foot pods are amazing. I use the stride foot pod and that's, I would consider that kind of the gold standard. It's the one thing that that device is trying to do is interpret your energy output. Um, when you have it on your wrist, like as in the modern Garmin's and Apple Watch, there's a lot of noise that's happening there. You know, obviously your arms moving around. Um, it's relying on GPS signal, which is getting better with multi-band GPS, um, but it's still relying on a couple of external inputs to try and predict uh, the the um, like the power output because uh, you've got to keep in mind it's it's got to have a barometer in in it so it can measure the the pressure the outside uh, like atmospheric pressure so it knows that the change in gradients happening um, and so yeah I've seen it to be a bit noisy on the watch. Uh, and so I, I don't use that as a fundamental, like a primary metric for people who are using just wrist space. Um, it's still good, but yeah, for a lot of people, it's, it's another thing that can be pretty challenging to get your head around. Yeah, definitely it is. And it's, it's new as well. So I think like people wouldn't be as familiar with it. If you were to kind of simplify it for the listeners, what would you say is one 
or maybe even there's a there's a combination of things to kind of measure or look at with your training to have like a good feel of you know fast slow different paces and stuff like that um so pretty much up to marathon pace i use heart rate All right so if you're going for an easy run it doesn't re- you need to be running easy you need to minimize the stress on the whole the whole system so real slow <laughs> like pick a pace that's like really slow and then you can use heart rate because if you are really really stressed and say you've just done a race you know you've just done your race if you tried to run the next day you might be running really slow but your heart rate might still be pretty high so you've got to go slower than that um then zone two for sure a lot of the time no one lives in a dead flat area with like pristine temperature and humidity um i've got a, a forest local forest that has endless amounts of trails through it so on you know on gravel roads i'm on trail i can't look at pace if i was trying to chase a zone two pace i'd be just smashing myself up the hills and then relaxing on the downs so heart rate is going to be the best for zone one, zone two. And then you get into marathon. Again, within training, marathon intensity can vary a lot. You know, if you've if you're in week three of like a three-week block, maybe you're going to be 10 to 15 seconds off per mile off of your like goal pace. So heart rate can be more reliable for anything steady state. Once we start getting into half marathon intensity. So for me, I'd consider that zone one, two, three. Then we start getting into zone four, five, and then six or seven. If you're using those, that half marathon intensity, I like to use pace for for that or power if the athlete's familiar with power. But at this stage, I'll give you some advice on that in a sec. But that's when you start to use pace. You go, okay, so now around that threshold area, 95% and up, Heart rate can be kind of variable. So what I see a lot is, you know, let's say you um you had a couple of beers with the boys the night before, and then you didn't have any water before you went to bed, and you're getting up. You're not you didn't get drunk or anything, but um you you're slightly dehydrated, and so you get in thirty minutes into like an hour and a half, hour forty five workout. Your heart rate's going to maybe jump up a little bit, maybe five beats higher because you've sweated out a bit and you you don't have the same like blood volume normally and so i can see those workouts not being as effective if you rely on heart rate because sometimes it can be you're like oh heart rate's really high i better slow down and now you just you're just kind of running too slow to get the the actual muscle biomechanical stimulus so i like to use pace for kind of half marathon intensity and up and even marathon sometimes depending on what you're like, if you have a time goal and you know the course is pretty flat, you got to kind of run the pace, you know, a little bit, but mostly that's the goal. And then if you're doing 10K, 5K, like, let's lock it in. Like, you got to, you want to run a 40 minute, 45 minute, like, you got to run, you got to run the splits. And so, you got to see if that's realistic. And then, what I'd recommend if people have running power access to it, is then start to look. Like when you're doing your, your zone two run or you, you're doing your steady effort, your tempo effort, your zone three kind of effort, have a look at what your power is. Just have it on your watch screen, you know? So have your heart rate, have your pace, have your power, 
time and distance. That's kind of what I have on my screen. Right, primarily primarily looking at heart rate for most of my runs. But then I can keep an eye. And so running on the flat and I'm running at 150 beats, you know, zone two kind of thing. Be like, okay, 280 watts. All right, so that's that's interesting. That's And then you can start to get a gauge of like when you're running up a hill and you start to run at 310 watts. It just, yeah. And just through that, as the world of knowledge progresses and the actual metric itself progresses, you'll at least be kind of on top of it. And then for those data geeks, you can just keep going. Interesting. Yeah, I think I'll keep it simple for now with the uh, the heart rate and the pace and just start to dabble a little bit in, in the wattage. So I won't overwhelm myself. I think that's a very easy thing to do. But... Yeah, so the easiest thing I think is like when I've, because um, you're following one of my plans like for your running, it's like when you have hill repeats, you just go, okay, I'll just try and make sure I'm try and figure out what your power might need to be and see if you can try and keep it constant. You know, you're like, okay, well, these are kind of threshold hill repeats. So I should be running, you know, around, uh, say, 6.45. And so then you can kind of have a look and uh, at your power when you're running 6.45. Okay, all right, let's see if I can hit 350 watts for these hill repeats. Um that's a good way to to go about it yeah got it yeah hills definitely something i'll encounter here in san francisco with the the way the city is but well this has been great thanks so much for all your time is there any kind of final message you want to leave people with or links or anything you have coming up oh well <laughs> i just i saw it why don't we i'll go over this all right i saw one of your questions five most common mistakes newbie runners typically make of four mistakes that ruin consistency. So let's finish with that. Yeah. All right. So what would be mine? Um, not having a plan. A hundred percent get yourself a plan. And then this can lead to drwilloconnor.com because I have training plans and uh, you don't need, I don't think you need a, um, like a one-on-one coach or anything like that. I think just get a plan that you can trust and is adjustable to your threshold so like um my ones you can i've got a test you do the the 30 minute run test and then there's instructions on how to set your zones and then your threshold will just keep updating so it's going to be it's going to be specific to you it's not one of these generic like how to run a, a sub two hour half it's like you know get a plan that you can trust and so now you've at least got some accountability and some structure um run slower on your slow runs, run slower on your slow runs. Like that's definitely, those two things are massive. I didn't hear that. I feel like you have to repeat it again. <laughs> yeah. Those are massive, massive consistency things. Um, And what would be, so eat enough and then take carbs on your, so let's assume most people are kind of doing a half marathon. Uh, take some gels and figure out a nutrition plan for your training or racing. A lot of times I see people, you know, they, they're going for a 90-minute to an hour 45 kind of workout, and they might have a real small breakfast, if no breakfast, 
and then they're not taking any like water or carbohydrates during the session and it's really at a detriment to your progression as a as a runner um so yeah you want to be trying trying to get like during training as a minimum 40 grams an hour so you take three gels for a 90 minute like session you know that's specific not just your 90 minute aerobic run but if you've got say three by 3k or three by two miles or whatever it's like take some gels make sure really target that as as some as a specific kind of thing so that would be my four get a plan run slower eat enough all your time and all your tips and uh yeah we'll, we'll hear from you again soon all right no love being on appreciate it